Hi, Cherise here with a special announcement. You can now enjoy select episodes of Detailed in video form. That's right. Detailed is now available on RCAT's YouTube channel. Now, you may be thinking, I already listened to the podcast. No need to watch it on YouTube. Well, trust me, if you don't want to miss out, even if you're an avid listener of the podcast, the video format is a completely different experience. Not only is it like hanging out with us, but you also get to hear parts of the conversation that were left on the cutting room floor. You can also see the photos, drawings, and video as we discuss the incredible projects that are featured. Come join us on YouTube. Follow the link in our show notes, and let's get into the details. This is an original podcast by RCAT. Try the number one most used website for finding building product information and save time and money. No registration is required with RCAT, so try it today and get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. If we're so dialed in or locked into a design and our thinking that we can't imagine it being different or, you know, somehow we're, we're being affronted by the owner or the process or the builder, you know, that's just sort of silly. And so we'd rather not even think that way from the beginning to the end, just roll with it and we will find solutions to these problems. Yeah, the design is, is a solution to the problem. And if someone changes the problem, the, your solution <laughs> might not be the solution to that problem. So you have to like think that way. So you, you might fall in love with the thing you made and it looks perfect. And if they change the problem and that no longer solves the problem, you have to crumple it up and throw it in the trash and start over. Like you, you have to be willing to do that. Right. That was beautiful. We made the thing. We solved the right now. We have to solve a different problem. Let's move on. This is Detailed. An original podcast by RCAT. I am your host, Sharice Lakeside, Senior Specification Writer at RDH Building Science and fondly known as the CSI Kraken. We will speak with professionals who share their insights into the most complex, interesting, and odd building conditions and the ingenuity it took to make it work. Join me as I pull back the curtain on the building industry and uncover the lessons learned. You'll gain valuable knowledge to help you better navigate your next project. My guests today are Danny McNally and Adam Ruffin, both partners at, now listen to this, at Architecture Firm. I love that name, Architecture Firm. A collaboration of architects and designers in Brooklyn, New York and Richmond, Virginia. Led by Danny McNelly, Katie McNelly, and Adam Ruffin, they specialize in hospitality, residential, and contemporary art spaces. They approach architecture in a way that is clear in its process and outcome, economical in both means and gestures, and optimistic in its vision of a better future. Danny McNelly received a Bachelor of Arts in both physics and philosophy from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill before receiving a master's in architecture from the University of Virginia School of Architecture in 2002. A sampling of his hospitality work includes the renovations at the Carolina Inn in Chapel Hill, the Grove Park Inn in Asheville, and the Homestead in Hot Springs, Virginia, as well as a new hotel and new hotel brand at Quirk Hotel in Richmond. Another great name. 
Danny joined architecture firm as a partner in 2015 and has managed the growth of the office with projects for Quirk Hotel in Charlottesville, Arts and Letters Creative Company in Richmond, Common House Richmond, and numerous single and multifamily projects across the Mid-Atlantic region. He is a licensed architect in the state of Virginia and is a lead accredited professional in building construction and design, lead APBD plus C. Adam Ruffin studied architecture at the Georgia Institute of Technology and the University of Virginia, receiving a Master of Architecture in 2002. As one of the longest tenured members at Thomas Pfeiffer and Partners, rising to the role of Associate Director, he managed and developed some of the firm's most important cultural and residential projects. Adam joined architecture firm in 2017 and manages the Brooklyn office, overseeing projects at the Corning Museum of Glass, the Museum of Ice Cream. Does that sound awesome or what? The Museum of Ice Cream. Multifamily projects in Washington, D.C. and Virginia and private residences in Brooklyn, Manhattan, and Montauk. Adam is also a member of the Dean's Advisory Board at the University of Virginia School of Architecture and he is a licensed architect in the states of New York, Georgia, and in Washington, D.C. The project we are going to talk about today is the Arts and Letters Creative Company World Headquarters in Richmond, Virginia. But before we get started, don't forget to take a look at the project photos and drawings as you listen along. You can click the link in our show notes or visit www.arcat.com podcast. Situated in Chaco Bottom, this project entailed the formidable task of converting a 1930s Lucky Strike tobacco power plant into a vibrant, daylit headquarters. However, this journey began with a search for the right location to expand a rapidly growing business, Arts and Letters Creative Company, a branding and marketing agency based in Richmond. We started talking to them probably a year, year and a half before we ended up starting this design process. And, it, and they had called us in and they were probably 20 something people in an office that was really nice. It was pretty nice, but they were like, we want to change this space up. We need, we need a few more desks. We, we you know, we want to make it a little cooler, all that sort of stuff. And so we kind of talked to them. We said, Hey, we'll do it this way. And they kind of disappeared for six months and we hadn't heard from them. So we were like, Oh, well, I guess they're not going to do it. And then they came back and we're like, okay, actually we now have 45 people. We're bursting. It seems we can't be in this office anymore. So now we need to find a new one. So that's when we started looking around for various places and started helping them with planning. Probably by the time we got to do this project, they were at 60 or so people when this was planned to be 120 people. By the time we put it in, they were probably at 160 to 180 people. They're probably 300 now. So they ended up keeping all of their spaces. So they kept the old space. They kept the space they overflowed in while they built this one, and they've kept that one. We also got additional insight from Matt Pinion, project architect at Architecture Firm, who discussed the process of finding a site. We kind of did a series of test fits and studies with them on a handful of other sites around the city. And eventually, you know, found that the other spaces either weren't big enough or just didn't seem to fit the program that they needed. And that's where we ended up. So the kind of process that it took to get there, there's a handful of other schemes at other buildings that will never see the light of day. Amongst their options, Arts and Letters had their pick between sites for new construction and existing buildings, 
but it was the historic nature and various aspects of the Lucky Strike tobacco power plant that won them over. I mean, really, they were looking at both. They were in one area of town. They wanted to be in, you know, they were just kind of looking all over the city, but they wanted to be in the city around interesting people. You know, this is an ad agency, basically. And, you know, so it's a bunch of creative people who like cities and things like that. So obviously in a city, you probably have less options to build, but we were finding some spaces and starting to do some planning about building it. I think it was just trying to gain control of various sites and they were scrambling all around. And then one day, I think they walked into that building, fell in love with it, signed the lease and and it was off. So I think it really was probably just the power of the space that just sold them on it and they had to go. And in some ways, this one was one of those ones where we tried, wanted to do as, not to say do as little as possible, but almost like really try not to mess it up. We, you know, we've done a number of historic projects and these, and especially when you go to these big, beautiful buildings, you really don't want to screw it up. So you, you really want to make your thing highlight that, thing. you know, it, it's, it's, it becomes less about you needing to make something incredible instead of making, you know, you need to make something that highlights and makes the whole thing incredible together, but you don't have to make your thing shine as much. It's definitely fair to say also, you know, one of our motivating factors there, as Danny mentioned, was to not mess up this amazing shell of a building with these giant old windows and this kind of massive double and triple height space and being really quiet, letting our architecture be a kind of quiet presence within this amazing shell was kind of key. So it it led to a bunch of other decisions and kinds of decisions throughout the design process that hopefully you can see the result of that, but do kind of play out like don't mess up this amazing experience on the river with, you know, these incredible views that are now afforded, even though, you know, the industry of that place is sort of gone, but its location on the river, which used to be really helpful now makes for kind of an amazing space where you get broad vistas in a town that otherwise doesn't really have them. You get all this daylight coming through these big windows, which is great for workers and collaboration and all that stuff. Arts and Letters has an open collaborative working method, and they do much of their design and production work in-house with creatives, direction production, writers, and video and graphics production taking place all under one roof. The transformation of the Lucky Strike Tobacco Power Plant into the Arts and Letters Creative Company World Headquarters is a compelling journey marked by innovative thinking and a commitment to preserving the building's authenticity. So going in there, it was really about, again, it was this huge space. You walk in, it feels, it's really interesting space because you can see, you could see the whole thing at the time. But it really wasn't enough to fit all the desks that they wanted. And again, the way that they wanted to work was less of let's just fit a million desks in the space. And it was more like everyone had a desk, but also places to meet. So, you know, they, they really had, a, had an idea about a collaborative workspace that was that you were always able to meet in groups of two and groups of four and groups of 10 or by yourself at the desk or a little Code by yourself. So we just had to create a lot more space. So that's part of what we ended up doing there was making these volumes where we could inhabit underneath them and inhabit up above them and sort of end up, you know, just creating enough square footage that we could fit all of this program. And they also have a, a fairly unique set of, maybe it's not unique in their world, but in ours, set of work types. You know, they, because they're a creative company, they obviously need to be in groups of creative people chatting and collaborating and coming up with ideas and doing sort of workshopping that a lot of us designers understand pretty well. But then they also do a lot of their own production. 
So they need to go off and have, you know, Photoshop space, computer space, dark space, doing their own video recordings, doing their own audio recordings. So there's something interesting about the building, which is harder to capture in the photography. There's kind of this amazing undercroft of concrete. All these concrete floors that used to support these really big machines have these spaces underneath that, you know, create smaller, darker, more kind of individual space for focus and doing some of that other work that they do. So the variety in the space is really one of its key strengths is that it has these spaces for a certain kind of work, then a space for another kind of work. Then as Danny mentioned, we added these twos and fours and sixes and tens and ways to really gather in a bunch of different forms of teams throughout. But it's a, you know, it goes from the light all the way down to the dark within the building in the same building. And it's, that's a, a difficult thing to do in a, in a new build without it being sort of awkward or clunky or forced. This building sort of presented itself to them as a really good fit for their program. Matt expanded on their design approach and the overarching concept that drove their design solution. They didn't really have an explicit program in mind in terms of we need X number of conference rooms and you know these types of spaces. They talked more with us about kind of how they work and this idea of how the various parts of the agency interface with one another and thinking through the spaces in which those types of interactions happen. And so part of our concept with them was this idea of the city and the park. (laughs) And so, you know, more rigid spaces, i.e. like contained, private, you know, more structured as being the city. And then these parks that might intersperse between all of those spaces that become a bit more communal where, you know, potentially interactions that are a little more informal could take place between various folks that are working together. And so we kind of use that as a diagrammatic overlay onto a lot of these spaces. But then at the same time in parallel, we're doing a a study of how many people they had working for them. How much space does a person need at an office, both at their desk and when they don't want to be at their desk and kind of worked back and forth with them a little bit to generate a program so that it was less about conference rooms and desk space, but more about like small, medium, large and communal spaces and how we could aggregate those within the like city park framework that we had talked about with them. Most of the, you know, let's say two thirds of the bodies are probably creatives or, or at least in support of the creatives. And so they're, they're sort of in the open workspace. So there's probably just a lot of those people. And again, the, the thought was that they'd have a desk, but that they wouldn't always be at the desk. That was like a place to drop your bag more, more than it was probably to sit there and work all day. Although some people like doing it that way, but I think they were finding that a lot of their people like to sort of go off, you know, it's almost like a coffee shop or like a hotel lobby, I think is the way you wanted to think of it. So it was almost like putting all these desks in like a big overarching space that allowed you to then have these little meetings of twos and fours. So we, we made little teeny nooks that are literally one per, you know, it's a door, it's a small room with a, with a, with a comfortable chair and a table and that's it. And that's a room. And then there's a room that has slightly bigger. So it could have two chair, two comfortable chairs and a table. So two people could sit there and talk. And then there's another one that could be three and four and, you know, 10. And then there's a big giant conference table that has 30 people in it. So I think it's just, again, 
I think them not knowing what they'll need in the future was just like, let's make sure we have a little bit of everything, you know, and, and enough of it that we can, you know, come into that space and, and everyone will feel comfortable there, you know, and you're not, you're not fighting over the conference rooms. I think that was a big deal was to not have to like make your work so regimented as to be like, I'd like to talk to you, but we don't have the room until 3.30. So let's wait. I think there was a real idea of whenever the moment strikes, you need to be ready to, you know, find a quiet place and talk about it. There's also the element of, you know, Danny and I do with the office, do hotel projects and museum type projects and cultural projects, you know, any space for a collective act, you know, there's got to be a front door that matters. They have people who are in the public who come here who don't necessarily need to go all the way to the back of the building. So the process of creating an entry that is meaningful in an existing shell that wasn't really about that, creating a powerful kind of lobby and, and front desk experience that was going to communicate what they were about, moving through the space, giving them collective spaces to gather. You know, there's the big amphitheater space that is fairly cliche now in most contemporary office spaces, but it really works. And they have giant presentations to 200 people at a time. And they're ready for that. And their gatherings, when they finally did get everybody back into the office, those moments were really critical that they could gather up, give a message, or you know, have a conversation all at once. So creating that kind of variety of experiences, but pathways in, you know, big kitchen, big commissary kind of space, big offices when they need them, as Danny mentioned, big lounges when they need them, as the sort of contemporary office always is, is good at including but it's kind of a variety of those things and a pathway in both for the person who works there and, and always has done and the person who's coming just to visit and say hello or have an important meeting or, or whatever the case is. Architecture Firm's approach respects the existing historic brick and tile building. The team preserved the building's character by maintaining elements like old machinery supports while removing non-usable elements and creating a clean pair of white volumes to capture the additional working and make spaces for this dynamic company. The masses are carefully placed and completely white to draw contrast between the new work and the existing building and maintain a clear distinction while harmoniously blending between the old and the new. For the skin of the building, we you know obviously did some cleaning, did a little bit of you know just to make it right, and and the the metal was a little bit all over, so there were certain things that were black, certain you know the ducts were were silver, you know all the things, and I think we sort of made the call that you know basically that thing should be brick and black, and you know so all that infrastructure would kind of go away and again make the building pop a little more, so that the and then with the things that we built again we were trying to be pretty quiet and also pretty simple about them, so I don't know that we picked anything that's like, you know, I think the wood is poplar, but we painted it because we didn't want to have to, you know, we wanted to make it a pretty quick process and didn't want to have to futz over, you know, stained wood, which might just sort of blow things up a little bit and also be a little louder. Um, it's really just drywall mostly in the project. And the stuff we built was trying to be pretty clean. And then again, trying to clean up the shell of the building to highlight the things that we think should be highlighted and let the other things recede to the background. And that's a pretty general kind of approach that we take. Again, you know, we talked about how doing the simple thing in a complicated space is usually going to be the right thing to do. And so do we have access to these materials? Do we have access to subs and, you know, future subs who are going to be able to take care of this building? 
is this a really precious building or not? And so we definitely err on the side of less precious. And, you know, the result is you, you still get to make beautiful forms. You still get to have a really quiet experience. You still get to amplify what the shell is about. But do you need a cantilevered piece of titanium to do that? Probably not. Do you need custom glass to do these things? You know, generally not. So I think we try to work with really available skills and materials and try to make the most compelling architecture with those pieces rather than feel like we have to go develop a custom detail or a custom system or, you know, a set of fabrications that are really complicated and hard to achieve. We like to be able to execute the things that we're designing and not trip ourselves up by overdoing it. There's also the, uh, the, the beauty of a building like that is it, it did exist in an era where natural light was really important. And so for, a, you know, to be a, a contemporary worker in that space, you can see trees, you can see daylight, you see the sun move, you see the seasons change from your desk. And so the perch that you have, and again, back to not getting, staying out of the way of what was interesting about this building we were able to create a bunch of workspaces that actually take in daylight, have fresh air, have access to outdoors and have the movement of the light. You know, there's these massive skylights on both wings of the building that change the light from minute to minute. And so all of those things were kind of baked in and we were able to take advantage of them, you know, not screw them up. Don't put shades in every skylight. Don't, don't have an attitude where you want to push all that stuff out, but let it activate the space. And it really does. I mean, the space is as dynamic a kind of natural environment as you could ever get in. It's amazing. And I, I mean, going back to a little bit what you're saying about being keeping it simple and, and that being sometimes the best way to go, it, it's also like we only have a limited amount of ability, effort, time, whatever to do our work. And so the less moves you can make, the more you can focus on doing those things correctly. Like if you if you make the crumpled piece of paper and whatever, and you but you only have three, you know, four months to design it, like you're not going to figure out all the ways that those things connect. You know, you can do it if you if you have the extended period of time and you can solve all the problems, but we find that we're usually, this was a quick project. Like, you know, they found the space and they want to be in it tomorrow. So to some extent, you have to like make decisions, decide what matters, solve that problem really well, and then kind of see, you know, don't make problems you can't solve. They adhered to a minimalist design philosophy consciously avoiding overdesign and complexity. One interesting example of this philosophy involved whether to make a small mezzanine accessible. There is an elevator that takes you from the ground level to the second level, and then we have a mezzanine that is, you know, not accessible. And I think within the code, there's a certain amount of square footage that you can have that isn't accessible. We were doing all sorts of research because we were going to put in a lift to get to make everything accessible. And but in a lift, if you look at the manufacturer's ability, they can make a lift that goes 24 feet, I think, something like that. But it's not allowed in the U.S. I think in Canada you can, but in the U.S. you can only go 12 feet with a lift. This limitation would require access by a separate elevator, leading to the need for a pit, elevator shaft, and all the additional components and subsequent costs typically associated with an elevator. Now, as you can imagine, working with a historic building can present a series of obstacles, including temperature regulation. You could feel it in the building. If you're on the ground, 
it feels like something. And then you would go to the, the top mezzanine and it would be 20 degrees hotter, more or less. And, you know, and if, and when it was, you know, those are all single pane steel windows, the walls are all just solid masonry. So, you know, when it's cold, those things are just radiating cold at you. So we knew we were never going to solve that problem. Like that, that's sort of the, that's sort of the, th- the trade-off you make in a big old building is you're not, you know, we're not going to replace those windows. They're awesome. We just wouldn't want to in some ways. So w- the big trick that we did, which wasn't too difficult, but, you know, because it's a pretty conventional system, blow and air, but we put some, those big ass fans in the ceiling and that was just meant to like destratify the air. And really it just breaks it up and it kind of keeps the the top and bottom instead of being 20 degrees apart, they're five to 10 degrees apart, five degrees apart. So there's still certainly an amount of in the middle of the summer when the sun's shining through the window and you're up on that mezzanine, it's probably a little hot. And, you know, but I think it's been pretty comfortable. You know, it's probably as comfortable as my current office <laughs> at any rate. And it is safe to say that the the education of the client on something like that is really important when you're going into a building like this, where we know we're not getting you know a consistent floor plate, we're not getting consistent solar exposure, we're, we don't have the ability to create a really tight envelope. So we have to make sure you know this is not a museum environment with a flat humidity and a flat temperature. It's it's absolutely the opposite. But making sure that the client, the owner, the user understands that going in and that there are a lot of different ways to mediate you know we have shades that are operable that can block sunlight we have windows that open that we can let in fresh air when it's the right thing to do making sure that everyone understands what the challenges are with a building like that before we get into the design or before everyone moves in is really important we can't solve for all of those problems perfectly like we could maybe in a different environment but also a non a sort of non-American version of the world, which says it doesn't need to be perfect all the time. And our bodies are, are, you know, creatures of nature and we can stand to get a little hot and we can stand to get a little cold. And that's kind of fine. And Virginia is a great place because it never gets really cold. It gets pretty hot, but, you know, it's sort of a, a nice temperate climate. It might be really difficult to be in a building like that if it were in New York State or if it were in Miami. But in Virginia, it's kind of good. They get variety. And it's manageable variety, I think, in the climate. Yeah, and programmatically, again, we talked about sort of the ability, the, the nomadic version of the of the of the people in the place. But you can kind of just go to the place that you're comfortable whenever you need to. So that's that was probably the, the HVAC was probably the biggest challenge because you know the architecture, the thing. You know, we didn't, we probably weren't digging too deep into the envelope to find all the problems. It was one of the tricks of again not not trying to alter the skin too much, but just try to build things with it, build pieces of furniture more or less inside of it helped. But the one, the one fun story was like when we first got in there and we started digging around looking for, you know, to do the existing conditions. And at some point we go into some closet and there's a, there's a PVC, clear PVC pipe running down into a trash can that's full of, that's almost completely full of water. And we dug into that and realized that there was a leak and that leak was coming in and their solution was to collect the water, put it in the trash can. And you just have to empty it every so often. So, <laughs> so that, that's, that's, that was the beginning. We, I think we fixed that leak. So that so we got, we, we moved it one. I think there was probably another leak popped up every, you know, it's like a little bit like the, the Dutch boy in the dam. Like every time you, every time you plugged a leak, something else popped up. But. Exactly. <laughs> also the element that I think we always kind of bring to a project and in, in a project like this, it makes even more sense you know, we're not trying to do very complicated things almost ever. 
I think we like the idea that what we're adding to a project is clarification and simplicity and, you know, achievability. And so in a climate like this, where you're going to go into this building, you know, you're going to find things that are going to throw you off. You know, you're trying to prepare for budgets and you're trying to, you know, have the, the reality of what you're undertaking in a space like that. You know, it's coming. And so we like to be able to mitigate some of that by, you know, proposing simple solutions to the problem rather than very complicated, you know, high touch materiality in a space like this is not appropriate. You know, all of the things that could get us off track down the road or, or don't give us any wiggle room to get out of a design solution that helps in a job like this. And, you know, it's kind of what we do in most of our projects is try to keep it simple and achievable. And so in a place like this, you know, there were challenges, there were things that came up and you're like, Oh man, nothing we can do about it. We have to fix it. You know, client builder, whomever, we have to get through this problem by fixing it. We can't ignore it, but let's hope that the additions and the work that we're adding are not going to, you know, also blow up the ship in the other direction. As I always say, construction is where the rubber meets the road. But this project encountered an obstacle beyond normal construction scenarios. As we mentioned earlier, the client, Arts and Letters Creative Company, was rapidly growing. The pace of their growth was, you know, getting ahead of our ability to design this space properly. So really, you know, halfway through, we're designing it for 50 more people, 60 more people, and 70 more people during construction. And so there was there, there was the element there where, you know, it was less about the building and those challenges, the, you know, the usual thing that, that we feel like we're capable of dealing with. And it was more kind of from the program and design side, we're almost done with this job. Can we be flexible and nimble and still create, you know, more space, allow more people in the room and kind of deal with it? Don't lose the architecture that's been designed and had been kind of conceptualized with the owners but still make that work. So that was a real challenge that happened, you know, more or less the you know, last couple months of the job. And we had to jump on that and make it work, but we did. And they're a creative company and they understand the creative process, but they're also a creative company that's working in a, in a, in a medium that is a lot quicker than arch- architecture is a very, very slow process. You draw it, you, you know, everything just takes years. And I think they understand that, but also there's just like, well, why don't we just move that thing over there and do this? And it's like, it all conceptually makes sense, but instead of it being, you know, a video that you're editing or let's reshoot that scene, it's like, we need to get the thing to the contractor so we can get it to the subcontractor so we can get it to the guy. And then that guy's going to tell you, you know, it's going to go back up the chain and tell him how much it costs. And it's going to go back down the chain. And then it's, he's going to say, okay, I can get to it in three weeks. And then, and then there's something else that's some other sub that then you have to go back up and down the chain for that. So it's, it's just this, you know, as, as you've done it a couple of times, you, you, you realize it's just a slow thing. So when someone wants it to be quick, it's, it's hard. And it, I mean, you can do it, but it just takes, you know, you just have to stay on top of everyone. The flexibility and understanding of the client and the contractor were instrumental in managing these changes. When the client does that, you know, the architect can blow it up and make it a difficult thing to do. And then the contractor could blow it up and make it a difficult thing to do if they didn't want to do it. But I think that's also the nature of keeping good relationships with having an owner that is a great, you know, they're, they're so great that they make you want to do things for them and not make it hard for them. And then the contractor keeping a good relationship with them and them being willing to help and not being obstructionist about it. So 
And it's not even that they want to fight. Sometimes it's just that there is like this legal process, you know, we're, we're making legal documents and we're handing them over. And then everyone is, you know, once you start, if, if you're unwilling to go outside of that process or to talk outside of that process, again, you probably still need to follow the process to make sure all the legal documents still are buttoned up at the end of the project. But everyone needs to be able to just understand what the other guy's trying to do and then not try to say that is a good thing to do and I will help you do it or you really shouldn't do that. I advise against it. Right. There's also just the flexibility of thought for us as designers. Like, as we mentioned, we try to keep it simple, but we also are prepared to think differently about the solution if it's no longer the solution or if it's not solving the problem anymore or if itself is becoming a problem because it's too specific. And so I think being able to be flexible and nimble as designers is really important. You know, we don't want to set up this Rubik's Cube that's, you know, so perfectly done that as soon as you move one thing over, the entire design is ruined. You know, that's not smart as a business. It's not smart as a to keep the process moving. But as designers, you know, we, we want to create spaces that are flexible and we want to be nimble of thought as we're doing it so that we don't feel locked into a thing either. We, you know, again, we know complications through design, through budgeting, through construction, through all of the, you know, they all happen. And if we're so dialed in or locked into a design and our thinking that we can't imagine it being different or, you know, somehow we're, we're being affronted by the owner or the process or the builder, you know, that's just sort of silly. And so we'd rather not even think that way from the beginning to the end, just roll with it and we will find solutions to these problems. Yeah, the design is is a solution to the problem. And if someone changes the problem, your solution <laughs> might not be the solution to that problem. So you have to like think that way. So you, you might fall in love with the thing you made and it looks perfect. And if they change the problem and that no longer solves the problem, you have to crumple it up and throw it in the trash and start over. Like you, you have to be willing to do that. Right. That was beautiful. We made the thing. We solved the right. Now we have to solve a different problem. Let's move on. It's hard, but. Part of Danny's philosophy background is that he's very dialed into the logic of the thing. Yeah. <laughs> and so one of the, you know, it is part of our process is, is there a logic here that we can defend and be happy about? There are a million aesthetic solutions and different ways to, to make a thing look one way or another. But is there a logic here that we believe in that we can defend, that we can present to a client or a builder that makes sense and is, you know, responding to the, to the issues or the problem or whatever? Obviously, we care a lot that things are really beautiful. But there's a, you know, there's a beauty in the sort of elegance of a thing. And there's also a beauty in the logic of the thing. And I think it, it matters to us a lot that these things do solve the problem. And there is a logic behind them. and that We can get behind them, support them, believe in them. But when the logic needs to change, it's got to change. You know, and we're ready for that, too. What sets this project apart is its embodiment of the keep it simple philosophy. The team prioritized straightforward and functional solutions, avoiding overcomplication and focusing on the fundamental logic behind their designs. Before we close out this episode, I always try to gain some additional insight from our guests about the greater industry. I was curious what notable thing changed Danny and Adam's design perspective as they went forward in their careers. Well, it may jump back to the thing we were talking about before, where it's really about the kind of the 3D workspace or, you know, like the way that, you know, once that, once it became easy to visualize things, we came up obviously in an era where you were, we were still hand drafting everything at school, but the 3D software was coming out. And so we were starting to render, but they were all terrible and they took two hours, you know, they took two days <laughs> to do. So no one did it. 
But I guess as that's progressed and now it's part of almost the tool that we're using to make drawings can also make the 3D renderings and it's InScape and all those things. And it's really pretty exciting. Like we were saying before, I don't think we all understand how the tool works well enough and especially in the context of how to make a good drawing set. Because I think the thing that that fools you into is you end up designing your building in 3D and making this thing, which you almost figure everything out, but then you don't relay how to build it to the person who has to build it as effectively. So I, like I said, I, I, that's, that's definitely changed the way I think about everything and I don't have I figured it out yet. So. <laughs> I mean, it's sort of, you know, as, as we think about being a practice now, instead of just individual architects, the tools that we have at our, you know, at our disposal to Danny's point, it really has changed the way we worked. I mean, when we started the office, we were we were still in a 2D environment, even though it was computer-based. Now to be in this very rapid kind of iteration with tools that actually create very simply and quickly relatable imagery that our clients can understand. You know, everything that we're doing all the time, like within the studio, we kind of know what we're doing. Danny and I can grunt at each other and we know what we mean about that space and how it ought to look. But communicating quickly to clients and obviously you know we've come up in very high design background offices the communication of the work was as much a problem or as much a a challenge as the development of the work and it's nice that some of that has kind of moved toward us where the the doing the design work and being able to communicate it effectively is kind of the same process it lets us be as iterative as we ever were but lets us find efficiencies in the way we work and not have to grind everybody up into paste and, you know, be the, be the egotistical architect who expects everyone to work till midnight all the time and suffer for their art. You know, we run a business. And so it's nice to be able to kind of find efficiencies where we can, both in our design thought and ethics, but in the tools and be able to kind of, you know, be more expeditious in the way we make architecture too. I really enjoyed this conversation with Danny and Adam. I hope this episode sparks a new idea, helps you solve a problem that you've been working through, or inspires the mark that you want to leave on this world on your path to world domination. Mostly, I don't want to dominate the world. That's <laughs> exhausting. So, but yeah, it, I mean, I suppose just personally, I, be kind, I guess, and maybe just, you know, in that way, be a good friend, good father, good husband, good business partner, good boss, you know, to some extent. Good boss. It's maybe a little punty, not not (laughs) totally answering it, but. I'll pick up the punt though, because I think, you know, we do talk about this a lot and it kind of, it, it sort of gets back to what we hinted at in the last question, but, you know, we run a practice of that's made of people who are amazing architects who have full lives and have their own interests and, you know, their own families and all of these other things. It's one of the really great things about being in this position is that, you know, obviously making architecture affects people. People get to, we get to make beautiful buildings and people get to look at those buildings as our chief kind of output. But running a practice of architects who we care about, who we want to teach what we know, who we want to be, you know, as experienced and, and deeply architectural as possible. You know, we want them to be professionals. We want them to understand the ins and outs of the business, but we want to provide a platform for them to all get really good at this and maybe go open their own practices or affect people in the built environment or within the professional. And we get to also make the choice that our practice can be run 
efficiently, run respectfully, run ethically. You know, we don't hire a lot of free interns. We don't do, you know, a lot of the things that you just shouldn't be doing as a professional. We don't do them and we make a point of saying that we don't do them so that we can be held accountable by our team. That should be normal. It shouldn't be, you know, the process of making architecture shouldn't be so hard for everyone involved in the making of it. It's why we don't have the ego. It's why we don't try to be Adam or Danny. You know, it's why we're, we really care about the team we have. And so we want to maybe, maybe we're germinating and this is how we dominate the world. But if we could turn the architecture practice into something, you know, less ghoulish and, and egotistical and difficult, both by the way we think about it and by the way we form a practice, we, we do think of the practice of architecture as being an optimistic act. You know, you're trying to imagine some solution to a problem and thus make something better. It doesn't really matter what it is. And so, you know, if we're all involved in an optimis- optimistic act and enjoying it, that's the best. <laughs> you know, if we, if we can make this thing that we get to do, which we're really lucky to do, even better, even more educational for us, even more kind of connective than just crank out a beautiful piece of art every time out and you know who cares who's miserable doing it feels like a better approach for us thanks for listening if you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more visit rcat.com forward slash podcast to see photos details and more related project and product information that we discussed today while you're there take a look around rcat.com For over 30 years, RCAT has been the resource for AEC professionals to find the right products for their project. Try RCAT and see how their tools can save you time and money and help you get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this with your friends. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back to share more stories and lessons learned to help you navigate your next project.